ahead, take your seats and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. This is what Jesus said to his disciples, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Are you awake? Are you ready? The time is near, the Apostle John says in the book of Revelation. This same book, this last book of the Bible where Jesus' last revealed words to us are recorded. Some of you know what those words are. Jesus said, surely I am coming soon. This is the dominant hope of the New Testament. That Jesus is coming back. The biblical authors write in such a way as to always keep before us this simple fact that Jesus could and and might come at any moment. And as we read Peter's letters, we see that this hope is never far from Peter's mind. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, As Peter's talking about our great salvation and the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Further down in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to see in chapter 4, verse 13, as, as Peter continues to talk about our suffering for Christ, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then in verse 5, talking about the elders in the church, in verse 4 he says, when the chief, when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The the coming of Christ is always, always on the fore of Peter's mind. And he writes in such a way that he wants this to be true of us as well. Even in his second letter, he's writing to the churches and and he's reminding them, look, the world isn't just going to go on and on and on like we've always known it. Like those scoffers seem to say as, as they say, hey, where is the promise of his coming? You say he's coming, where is he? Why isn't he here yet? And Peter says, hold on, he's coming. He's coming. 
God is bringing all of history to a close. And in the text before us this morning, Peter shines the spotlight on this reality as he begins in verse 7. Look with me. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Time is short, Peter says. Be ready. Be ready. How would you live today if you knew that the end of all things could very well be tomorrow? How would you live today if you knew that the end of all things could very well be tomorrow? This question was put to Martin Luther 500 years ago in in Germany. Uh, The great reformer was asked this question and he gave this answer. He said, I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. What kind of answer is this? Well, always the witty teacher, never missing an opportunity to press truth home. I I don't think what uh, Luther was saying was that he... Um, was perfect, that he'd arrived in any stretch. But here's what he's saying. Here's his point. He's saying we need to be living like that every day. We need to be living in such a way that we wouldn't need to make radical changes in our lives if we knew that we were about to see the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter wants to tell us this morning. So again, I ask you, are you living in such a way that you're anticipating the imminent return of Christ the Lord? Sometimes the way we live would make it seem that we are not expecting Christ to return at any moment. Maybe we're living in such a way that we think it's far off, that the time isn't at hand. The time is at hand. The end of all things is at hand, Peter says. You're living as as exiles in a foreign land. We know it's going to be hard. We we, we know it's not going to be without its difficulties. But you have a living hope, he says. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And there's a divine schedule for all things. So take heart. Soon enough you will see him face to face. Be ready. Be ready. And then he goes on to tell us, what does this readiness look like? He's going to answer the question, how then should we live knowing that the end of all things is at hand? And he's going to give us five instructions for living during these last days. Five directions for urgently living in light of the end. Look again. At verse 7, the Word of God says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. First, we're told here, knowing that the end is near, think reasonably. Think reasonably. And I need to remind you this morning that the Christian life, the the life of discipleship, of following after Jesus, is one that is a calling to engage the mind. God gave us a mind, and I'm I'm not talking about um, being uh, 
superior intellectually. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about using the faculties of thinking that God has built into us as human beings to think properly, to think reasonably, not to be lazy in the way we look around and and assess our lives and and look to the word of God and to see how, how the word of God is meant to impact our very lives every single day in every way. How we're called to think about godliness and what this is going to look like in our lives. How we're called to think about where to to linger and where not to linger. Where to stay and, and to hold fast and where to flee and where to run. With these two his commands, these, they're, they're synonymous. Be, be self-controlled and sober-minded. What, what Peter is calling for, what the Holy Spirit is calling for, is for us to, to be sensible, to be thoughtful in our approach to life. This truly matters. Think of how Paul told the church in, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind. Right living is always preceded by right thinking. If we want to live right for the Lord, we need to think rightly. And Peter says here that how we think has a direct impact on our prayer life. You know, three times in just this short letter, Peter commands us, he commands the church of Christ to be sober-minded. We already read one earlier in in chapter 1 in the context of personal holiness. Peter says, be sober-minded. Think about what it looks like to turn away from sin. And to live in a manner that pleases the Lord. In chapter 5 and verse 8. In the context of resisting our great spiritual enemy. Peter says, be sober minded. Be watchful. And here in chapter 4 verse 7 he says, be sober minded for the sake of your prayers. If we're not thinking clearly, if, if, if we're not vigilant in disciplining our minds to remain focused on the mind of Christ, if we're not deciding to restrain ourselves from overindulgences, if, if we're not thoughtfully saying no where we should be saying no, whether it's saying no to too much of something that's not necessarily sin or, or saying no altogether in matters that are sin, if we're not self-controlled and sober-minded, listen, it's going to affect our prayers. And we so desperately need meaningful prayer, don't we? If we're going to be able to live for Christ in a hostile world against our faith, if we're going to wait well for His coming, we need meaningful prayer. 
I love what the ESV study Bible says about this. It says, the imminent arrival of the end is not a call simply to look into heaven and wait for Jesus' return. Instead, believers are to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that they may be devoted to prayer and maximize their usefulness in God's kingdom. The end of all things is at hand. So I ask you this morning, where might you need to be thinking more reasonably so that you can be more prayerfully ready for Christ? How can you be thinking in a more biblically stable way because the end is at hand? Last week we saw a number of areas that the Gentiles, those who don't follow Christ, are living in, like sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter said the time has passed for these things in our lives. And some of these, are, or I would say this list is, is more overt we may be more ready to acknowledge these areas as egregiously sinful and, and things that we want to steer clear away from, but, but what about those areas that maybe might be more common in our lives, maybe, maybe more acceptable in our lives that shouldn't be there? Things that are out of control, things that we are thinking wrongly about, that are preventing us from prayerful readiness for the end of all things. I'm thinking about the use of the tongue. Do you need to refine your thinking on the way that you use your tongue so that you are self-controlled and sober-minded when it comes to things that ought not to come out of your mouth, things that might hurt other people, things like maybe being quick to speak about others in a, in a way that is gossip or, or slander. Maybe you need to reform your thinking, transform your mind in the area of eating and, and drinking or sleep, taking care of your body so that you can be more ready for prayer. You know, isn't it true that a lack of self-control and, and proper thinking and, and just any one area of life can have such a grand effect on our entire lives? What about a quick temper? Maybe some of you are lacking control in your response to the things that upset you and you're given to outbursts of anger. Remember that this begins first in the way that you're thinking, in your mind, and it's going to have an effect on your prayer life. Are you self-controlled and sober-minded in the use of your finances, in the way that you think about managing God's money? Now, how about this one? I, I think this, to me, hits home the most. Are you thinking reasonably, being self-controlled and sober-minded when it comes to screen time? Are you spending excessive amounts of, of time lacking self-control when it comes to 
the amount of time you spend in front of your phone or your pad or your, or your computer screen or your television. Dare I say that if some of us spent just a quarter of the time in prayer as we do in front of a screen, we would multiply our prayer lives by tenfold. This begins in the mind. We need to think rightly. Time is short. The end of all things is at hand. Let us think reasonably for this purpose of prayer. It can be so easy to be distracted from prayer. So let us be self-controlled and sober-minded, Peter says. Think reasonably. Think reasonably. The end is at hand. Next, Peter says, knowing that the Lord is near, love zealously. Love zealously. Verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, if we know anything at all about Jesus' instructions for his disciples, we know that Peter here is continuing on in the tradition of what he had heard many times from the Lord Jesus Christ in his teaching. Jesus is greatly concerned that we would love one another well. Peter's been abundantly clear in this epistle, hasn't he? And and we know this is true from our own lives. That living for Christ, as we said earlier, is not going to be without its difficulties. Together we are in a spiritual battle. And listen, church, redemption, church, we are supposed to be a band of brothers in this battle. We're supposed to be able to depend on one another. We're supposed to care for one another. We're supposed to lift one another up. We're supposed to show much love to each other. And when the Master comes, Jesus was so clear on this, and He said it over and over and over again, and the apostles continued on in their writings in the same way. Be ready Be ready, Jesus wants to find us loving one another when he comes. Jesus wants to find his servants living in mutual love. And it's really important when we talk about love that we remember that, well, love is certainly something that involves our emotions. Love is not primarily an emotion but a decision of the will that leads to action. Love acts. Love extends for another's good. This is true biblical love. How do we know this? Because this is what the Bible says. And and in no uh, verse does it say this more clearly than in 1 John 3, verse 16. Look at it with me. By this, by this, We know love. All right, now here's what the this is that he laid down his life for us. 
And then what does he say next? What does John say next? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to love the brothers. This is love, to, to lay down our lives for one another. And so now as we return to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, and we see Peter's instruction here for us to love zealously, I just want to maybe parse this verse a little bit visually for us. I, I trust this might be helpful for you as it is for me. Peter, he begins by saying, above all, keep loving one another. Keep loving one another. This is his instruction for the church. Don't stop. This is ongoing. Moment by moment, day after day, continuously love one another. And now if we take John's definition, the biblical definition of love, and just put it in there just to remind ourselves what this is talking about here, maybe we could just see the verse like this. Above all, keep loving, keep laying down your life for one another. Are you seeing the weight of this? This isn't just some list in Scripture that we just read over and turn the page and close the book and say, okay, on with life. This needs to change our lives. Keep laying down your lives for one another. And then he says this, above all, keep laying down your lives, keep loving one another earnestly, earnestly. This, this word, earnestly, it means to, to stretch out, to strain forward. I read this week that this, this same word is used in ancient uh, Greek literature to talk about a horse in a horse race. Can you picture it? The horse that is just stretching forward as it, as it sprints down the track. Reaching out with great effort, with great zeal to care so deeply about another and their good that we deeply strain to give something of ourselves for them. Keep loving one another earnestly. And then finally, he says, above all, keep loving, keep laying down your life for one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What does this mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if I just um, show acts of love to others, that this will somehow atone for my sins, that it will make up for my offenses before a holy God or before others. This is not talking about covering up my sins. I'm going to out, you know, over, overcome my sins with love. That's not what this is talking about. Love covers a multitude of sins. Also doesn't mean that we never ever deal with any sin between us. It doesn't mean that we never call someone to account for their sins in a godly way. It's not saying that we never deal with sin. Here's what it means. It means that we can forgive one another. 
Love covers a multitude of sins means that we can cover over personal offenses. It means that we can say, I forgive you. I can get past that and we can move on in brotherly love. It means that we can even overlook a boatload of personal sins that are inevitably going to be committed against one another in the church. It means we don't have to address every little thing. It means we can humbly recognize that we are all still sinners and we're going to hurt each other. But we can still persevere in loving one another nonetheless. We must do this, Peter says. As the final day approaches, we must be committed to this call to love one another earnestly and not let sin divide us as we strive together. Let me get really personal now and ask you this. Is there someone in the church that you're holding love back from because they've sinned against you? Is there someone else in this fellowship that you're refusing to exercise your duty of love towards because of sin? Can you not forgive them? Can you not in some way lay down yourself for them? Listen, this is your calling. This is your calling. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what you're called to do. Listen, when we keep on loving, even in the face of sin, this is the power of the gospel at work in our midst. This shines a spotlight on Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. Many, many of you know the Word of God says, while we were yet sinners in love, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ laid down His life earnestly for us and now He calls us to do the same in His church, in His body, in His bride. Verse 9 goes on then to give us one very practical way that we can extend biblical love to one another. Look at verse 9. God's Word says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here we find the third instruction for living in light of the end. It's this, share willingly. Share willingly. To be hospitable means to welcome, to open the door, so to speak, to, to invite those who wouldn't normally come in to come in and to share life with them. Alexander Strzok has a little book on hospitality and he, he says these helpful words. He says, through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions. We share our family, 
home, finances, food, privacy, and time. Indeed, we share our very lives. We provide friendship, acceptance, fellowship, okay, I got those backwards, comfort, and love in one of the richest and deepest ways possible for humans to understand. This is what we are called to do for one another, not just a select few, not just our favorites, certainly not just our flesh and blood family, but others. One another in the church. And, you know, hospitality was one of the most prominent virtues of the early church. In the writings of early Christianity, both within the church and even those outside of the church who observed followers of Jesus Christ, noted the remarkable hospitality that was being shown and demonstrated through Christ's followers. In our day and age, and maybe in our um, country where we live, it seems as though, in many ways, hospitality is a forgotten virtue. So we're reminded this morning, even instructed, our hearts are instructed this morning not to forget. Not to forget to show hospitality. For some, this is a gift. It is something that um, comes maybe more naturally. Some are more inclined. I know many of you are inclined easily almost to open your homes, to invite others in. I would tell you, excel still more in this. Some, some of us, even if it's not a gift, need to know that this is part of the calling of the Christian life. To, to willingly show hospitality, as the text says, without grumbling, without murmuring, without complaining. I mean, we, we're tempted sometimes to complain about hospitality because it is costly. It, it does um, cost us many things, as, as we read earlier in, this, in that uh, quotation. It, it cost us our time. It cost us our privacy, uh, our comfort at times. It may be burdensome. It may sometimes be, be difficult and not always convenient. So Peter says, don't grumble. Don't grumble. Listen, show hospitality. Share willingly because you, you know what? If, if we're not doing this, you know what that indicates? Let's think about this. Let's stop and, and think soberly about this. We're being selfish. We're being selfish. We're thinking more of ourselves than we are about others. And this, this friends, would be the complete opposite of love. This would be the complete opposite of what Jesus calls us to and, and, and demonstrated for us in His own ministry toward us. So it's important not only that we affirm the value of hospitality, not only that we just say, yes, yes, the Word of God says it. I see it there. I know it's true. It's important that we practice this. Perhaps you've not 
realized before the, the importance, the, the premium that God's word places on hospitality. Or perhaps maybe you've, you've known this in the past, but you've, you've let the habit slip. You know, I, I think hospitality is one of those things you can, you can see that is necessary and a great way to love other people, and, and you start to do it a little bit more regularly, and then you know, things happen in life, and then all of a sudden, back to the way it was before. Let us be stirred up, church, this morning to get, to get back to the practice of hospitality if it slipped in your life. And maybe I'll just offer some practical suggestions of, of what this could look like to help us. First one would be this, in the next week or two, just, just resolve today. That in the next week or two weeks, you're going to invite somebody from the church who's never been in your home, maybe somebody whose name you don't even know right now, to come and share a meal at your place. Just resolve to do it soon. Another practical suggestion would be to, to pray about this. To pray that the Lord would open your eyes to how you can exercise this Biblical instruction in your own life. And, and at the same time as you pray, be, be watchful. Even be making a list of people. You know, maybe we can't be hospitable to everyone we know. We'd like to be hospitable to all at once, but we keep a list. Okay, here, here are you know, five individuals or couples or a mix of people that I want to invite into my home. When am I going to ask them? When, when am I going to initiate that? Have a practical list that you're praying over as you're watching. Another practical help might be to set a regular time in your calendar that you're going to mark as a a, a regular time to show hospitality in your life. Here's some examples of that. For some, it's Sunday afternoons. It's Sunday lunch after church. Sunday evening dinner, Sundays is just a time when, when you want to open the doors and invite others to come in to, to share life together. Uh, for others, maybe Sundays don't work so well. It may, maybe it's Friday nights. Maybe, maybe it's at the end of the week. You know, Friday nights is going to be just a constant in my calendar. Who are we having over this Friday night? Who are we having over next Friday night? And just, just knowing that that's a normal part of life. Think of holidays as well. This is an especially um, loving gesture, a a way to show um, care, to to extend ourselves for the sake of others around the holidays, to look for those who maybe don't have um, family that they're spending holidays with and opening our homes during the holidays. Here's another uh, practical help for showing hospitality, and it's Again, this just has to do with how we think. Thinking properly, it doesn't have to be perfect. Sometimes we neglect to show hospitality because we think everything has to be perfect before we can open the door. As, as though our lives are, are some um, perfect, you know, as though our homes are like always a show home, just ready for company where everything, people are going to walk in and just be like, wow, you always keep everything this clean, do you? Listen, hospitality isn't about impressing people. Hospitality is about people. It's about caring for people. 
So sometimes we're going to be able to be more ready than, than others. And sometimes we're not going to be able to be as ready as we might have liked. But let's not let that um, stop us from practicing this biblical one another. Another help for times of hospitality would, would be this. Be purposeful. Be purposeful. Use the time to share distinctly Christian fellowship. And here's what I mean by that. Um, share your testimony of faith in Christ. Ask questions about one another's walk with the Lord. Use the time to pray together. Some of the sweetest times of fellowship are when we gather together with people that we've never really spent too much time with. We open up the doors of our home and then we spend meaningful time just going before the Lord together. That, that really cultivates, as, as many of you know, just sweet fellowship and brotherly love within the church. Be purposeful. Be thoughtful. Consider what they might need during this time. Sometimes, you know, there's been times in my life when I've been welcomed into people's homes during periods of ministry and they've just given me a bed and said, hey, I bet you'd like to lie down for an hour. That, that was a really sweet way for them to minister to me. You know, sometimes people um, just need to be able to breathe and not feel overwhelmed by life's stresses, and there's ways that we can care in our homes for those people. Be thoughtful. Take inventory of what they're going through, who they are in the Lord, where they're at in their lives, and share your life with them. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, share Share willingly. Next, he instructs us as we wait expectantly for Jesus. He says, serve faithfully. Serve faithfully. Beginning in verse 10. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Serve faithfully. In His wisdom, God has designed the church while we wait for our coming Savior, while we wait for the end of all things, to be a group of people who are pouring into one another, helping one another, building each other up. And the means through which He does this is through giving us and us using spiritual gifts. And what I want to do here is unpack uh, this next section by asking a number of questions about spiritual gifts that the Word of God answers for us. And so here's the first question. What, what are spiritual gifts? What are spiritual gifts? The Bible teaches us here in First uh, Peter chapter 4, and I'll give you a few other uh, references to just write down. Ephesians chapter 4, 
Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. These are the places in the New Testament that most clearly define and speak to and unpack spiritual gifts. The Bible teaches us that spiritual gifts are Holy Spirit-empowered abilities. All right, just a simple definition there. Holy Spirit-empowered abilities. Spiritual gifts are the ability to do something well because the Spirit of God is working in and through us for this specific purpose. And we see here that these gifts are given by God. They are determined by God. They are received by us. They're not manufactured by us. We don't choose them. God chooses them. And it's according to His grace. See that at the end of verse 10? God's grace, His varied grace, it says. In other words, God's gifts of, of grace are multifaceted. They're, they look different. They come in all different shapes and sizes. We might say they're like snowflakes. They're unique to each and every person. No two are identical. And that leads to the next question, do I have a gift? Do I have one of these gifts? It's a good question. And to answer it, I just want to draw your attention back to the beginning of this letter. I think this is really, really important. Peter says, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's writing to those who are elect exiles. Those who've been set apart according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And then verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ your Lord this morning? According to His mercy, it says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is who, whom this letter is written to. Those who have been born again. Those who have a living hope. Those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If this is you this morning, then the answer to this question, do I have a gift, is answered in the beginning of verse 10 where it says, as each. As each. doesn't say as some of you have received a gift. doesn't say as most of you have received a gift. As each one of you who has been born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ, each one of you has received a gift. There's no such thing as an ungifted member of Christ's church. It should be good news for you this morning. Here's what that means. It means you are irreplaceable. It means you have a unique giftedness. And we'd be missing out if you weren't here and you weren't using your gift. Leads us to our third question. Who is my gift for? Who is my gift for? Excuse me.
in one word, others. My gift is not for me, it's for others. Each of us has received a gift, but it's not primarily for us. Isn't that interesting? Usually when we receive a gift, it's for us. But in God's wisdom, the gift that he gives is for others. It's for the benefit of the church. This is what distinguishes a spiritual gift from just merely being good at something, by the way. Use your gift to serve one another. That's what the Word of God says. Use it to serve one another. And when you do this, you will prove yourself to be a good steward. A steward was an individual entrusted with the administrative responsibility for a household and for the affairs of the household. This stewardship included the handling of property or wealth according to the owner's will and direction. The entrustment was not made to him for his own enjoyment. Yet he was, or rather, he was responsible to use his gift for the benefit of those he served. This is a steward. And again, I'll remind us that Jesus talked about stewardship. He talked about finding, coming, returning, a master returning and finding his stewards having been faithful. And in the household of the church of God, we are all stewards. Each one of us, a steward, and we're interdependent. We're called to serve one another. This is how God wants us to live. He wants us to be faithful servants. To serve Him by serving others. This is what we are. A bunch of servants. And if this makes you feel uncomfortable in any way to think of yourself as a servant, think of Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus Christ, the Lord, who, who left His heavenly throne of glory and came down to earth, He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We're called to serve called to use our gifts that God has given us to serve others. A couple more questions. How should I use my gift? How should I use my gift? And I want to say one word for this that's driven by the text would be dependently. Dependently. Verse 11 offers for us two broad categories of, of spiritual giftedness. Gifts that are employed through speaking and gifts that are employed through action. If we were to just put broad bucket categories here. Uh, Speaking gifts would include things like preaching and teaching and uh, evangelism and exhortation. Words of comfort, words of wisdom. These would be speaking gifts. Uh, Non-speaking gifts would would include uh, spiritual Abilities in areas like like showing mercy or giving generously. The gift of administration or, or, as the Apostle Paul says, gifts of helping. 
There's various ways that we might be gifted in helping one another. And whatever your gift is, Peter says you should use it dependently. Whoever speaks, it says, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Oracles are words that have been given by God. And so if if our gift is a speaking gift, then we rely on God's word as revealed in his scriptures as we speak to serve others. As we come alongside of others for their benefit. And we use our tongues, we make sure that we're depending on the wisdom of God's word. That we're speaking words that are consistent and true in accordance with God's word. If we're comforting other people, we're comforting people the way God's word would have us comfort people. If we're exhorting, we're exhorting in line with God's word. We're considering what we're saying. And we're speaking that which we believe God would speak if he was speaking through us. Whoever serves, Peter says, and and here he's simply referring to the gifts that aren't primarily speaking gifts, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. His strength, not ours, when we're serving other people. Again, this just shows great dependence. Whatever your gift is, use it with much reliance on the Lord who gave it. Whether it's formally or informally, this might be another way we would answer this question, how should I use my gift? You should use your gifts in formal areas of ministry, but also in informal areas. You don't need a title or a a specific role to use your spiritual gift. You just need to serve other people. Sometimes your area of formal ministry isn't even necessarily correlated to your spiritual gift. Make sure you're using the spiritual gift that God has given you to serve other people. And that leads to the final question here, and that is this. Maybe you're wondering this morning, what is my gift? Like, how do I know what, in particular, my gift is? What am I supposed to be doing to serve the Lord faithfully as a steward. And this one doesn't necessarily come from the text. This is more just applying biblical wisdom. Um, and so I would say this. Um, in what ways do you desire? Start there. How do you desire to serve other people? What are you able to do? So now look shift from desire to ability, what are you able to do that proves to be helpful to others within the body of Christ? Where where do you see fruit? Now really, this is a really important one here. Where do others (laughs) affirm giftedness and fruitfulness in your life? Where would others tell you that they see God's uh, various grace working in your life. And if, if you don't, if you're unsure, I would love to talk to you about that. Uh, there are others in the church, I know we would love to talk to you about that to help you see where the Lord would want to use you for fruitful service 
in this church, in the lives of others. Until I come, Jesus says, until I come, serve faithfully. Serve faithfully. And then finally, let's look at the latter half of verse 11. God's Word says, In order that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here, knowing that the end is at hand, the Word of God instructs our hearts to worship continuously. Worship continuously. This is the goal of everything. As we serve faithfully, whether we're speaking or serving in a way that isn't primarily speaking, as we share willingly, as we love zealously, as we think reasonably in all these things, the goal is that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. Here's how we can be ready to exalt Him when He comes. By exalting Him now while we wait. Church, magnify the Lord. Exalt Him, glorify Him by staying dressed and ready for action. Keep your lamps burning. Live to be found awake when He comes. Be ready. The end of all things is at hand. Now God gets all the glory in this because to live this way, for us to live this way is only at all ever possible as the text says, through Jesus Christ. It has to be through Jesus Christ. Could it ever be through us? It's through Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, apart from trusting in Christ, apart from Faith in in Him and what He's done in His death for our sins and in His resurrection for our hope. We would never be able to glorify God. We would never be able to do any of this. We would never have any hope that when He does return, that He would find us to be faithful servants. But we do have hope. His name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we say glory be to your name through Jesus Christ our Lord this morning. God, may you be exalted in this place. May you be exalted through our lives as we strive to live for you. As we wait for your Son. God, we praise you now for the hope 
of Jesus Christ. We praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we don't have to wander aimlessly through this world wondering what's going to happen and will it all end someday and will it always be like this and, and what is the purpose of my life? What am I doing here? What's my meaning? We don't have to wonder these things because through Jesus Christ you breathe life into our souls and I pray God that you would encourage us by these truths this morning that you would stir our hearts to live for you Lord and if there's any here that do not know Christ Jesus God that you would be pleased this morning to awaken to bring life to bring light for your glory and praise that all the more would would resound in glory and honor forever and ever Through Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen.